0: Revelation chapter 8. And then as you turn to Revelation chapter 8, flip a few pages maybe and go to or scroll down a little bit. And we're going to end on Revelation 1115. And when I say end, we're just reading those two verses. We're not going to read all four chapters today. Um, My hope is, is that all of you uh, have read uh, these four chapters ahead of time. Uh, Because if we were to read all four chapters, it'll be the entire time that we have allotted uh, to this message. And so I would rather just read the first and the last uh, verse. And so here we go. Revelation chapter eight, verse one. When he opened the seventh seal, uh, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then, chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. In Greek myths, the character Telemachus, uh, which means faraway fighter, was a timid and diffident child. But as an adult, he defended the honor of those he loved, and he became a fighter and a hero. And unlike his mythological counterpart, the 4th century monk Telemachus was anything but a fighter. Or perhaps it can be argued that his greatest fight was his effort to eradicate fighting? An ascetic herman from a hermit from the east, and unknown except for his final act, Telemachus journeyed to Rome just in time for the victory celebrations. And after years of aggressive invasion from the continent, Rome had finally defeated the Goth king Alaric in, in northern Italy in 403. As was common in those times, extravagant ed- gladiatorial contests were held in celebration of military victories, and the twenty-year-old emperor An- Honor Anarius decreed that this particular celebration would be held in the fifty-thousand-capacity col- Colosseum, a battleground named for the colossal, a hundred thirty-foot statue of Nero nearby, and the emperor. Uh, made famous for condemning Christians into, and making them into human torches. Oh. If there was one place in all of Rome that a pacifist Christian might consider avoiding, uh. the Colosseum was it. Yeah. Telemachus, a rudely clad man of rough but imposing presence, resolved to interrupt, indeed to stop, the bloody contest in the Colosseum. Thousands had gathered that day, Cries of Habet Hak Habet erupted from the crowds. He has had it, they cried every time a fighter was mortally wounded. And in this atmosphere, Telemachus jumped from the crowd into the arena itself, no longer spectator, but became an activist, a peacemaker, and a preacher. Do not requite God's mercy, he screamed, in turning away the swords of your enemies by murdering each other. And certainly the the crowd heard him, but the gladiators continued fighting. And Telemachus ran between the gladiators, pleading with them to stop. And sedition, sedition, down with him, roared the crowd. This is no place for preaching. The old customs of Rome must be observed on gladiators. And still Telemachus continued to turn from one encounter to another, stopping gladiators in mid-fight. Then, frustrated by the annoyance of one man interrupting the games, someone pulled a sword and thrusting it, Telemachus fell. Joining in, the crowd threw stones down from their seats to the arena below. And news quickly spread throughout Rome that the murdered man was Hermit Telemachus. Rome was shocked, as was Emperor Honorius that such a gentle man had been slain. Telemachus' courage and boldness to speak God's mercy and love changed the games forever. A man bent, bent on peace, Telemachus lost his life fighting in the grandest battleground of Rome. And soon after his death, gladiatorial battles were banned from the Colosseum, wow. Telemachus had achieved the impossible. Well, okay. I want to remind you that we're going through the rest of Revelation and see how Jesus defeats evil, both in the seen and unseen. And we will be. And uh, my hope is is that so far you have been challenged to remember that the way of the Lamb is the way of peace that destroys yes. evil. Yes redeems the world and calls us to reign with him much like the way that telemachus lived his life his perfect justice triumphs over evil therefore following the way of the lamb has implications for the way that we live in society relate with others and deal with injustice and so our hopes for this series are threefold and they continue to be our hopes One, that our eyes would be open to the spiritual realities of injustice. Two, that we would come to see and know Jesus's righteousness that sets all things right. And then three, that we would step into our call as peacemakers and live in the way of peace. So there's this idea of your eyes being open to the spiritual realities that exist about injustice, that we get to see Jesus rightly. And then Jesus calls us into a step of obedience And that we would take that step of obedience and live as peacemakers, making a way for peace. Now, I must admit, uh, Lauren can attest to this, that I come today with knots in my stomach and a weightiness on my own heart. And I feel like I can only imagine, like this way that I'm feeling, I, I feel like it's the only way that I could imagine maybe my own wife was feeling like when she was about to give birth to our sons. There's this angst, there's this anticipation, there's this focus and a drive uh, within me to teach today. And I've been praying that this message honestly is a turning point for our personal lives and it's a turning point for Ecclesia City. Because what I want to do is I want to approach uh, all four chapters today. But the way that I want to do that is by first, I want to give you an outline of what is happening in these four chapters And then i want to end by exhorting you in what we learn about these chapters okay so uh part of this outline and what i want to do is you'll see slides and the slides are going to contain the main ideas of the details that i will be giving you uh if you desire um just let me know after the after the gathering while we're eating dinner if you desire the details of the outline I'm happy to email those to you so that you can kind of go through it so here's what I want you to focus in on if you're taking notes try not to take the details down because those details are provided in the outline but what I would want to encourage you to do is to write down the main ideas maybe it's what's on the what's on the slide or it's maybe some things that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in that moment but I want you and my and I and I want to Challenge you, exhort you, love you into uh, just honing in and focusing in to this because I think this is really uh, important. Now, let's jump in. You ready? Ready. See. All right. We're coming off of Revelation seven, where we see that we are a sealed and a secured people, That's right. and we're a sealed and a secured people that sing in the midst of all hell breaking loose, as we saw in the seven seals. And so we started in Revelation chapter 8, and what happens in Revelation chapter 8 is that all of a sudden there's 30 minutes of silence, uh, 30 minutes of silence, and in that 30 minutes of silence, what you figure out throughout Scripture is that any time silence uh, is in Scripture, it means that there's about to be a significant judgment that is coming. And so 30 minutes of silence in heaven where worship is interrupted. Eternity stops. Angels stop. And there's 30 minutes of it. A minute of silence makes some of you squirm. Think about 30 minutes now. And there's a 30 minute period where everything stops because what is about to happen is uh, so out of this world and seemingly so horrific that there has to be a pause to be able to take in what is about to happen. But we are introduced to the story by basically saying that that um, uh, The angels appear and they take uh, incense from the altar and they put that together with the prayers of God's people, those that are under the altar in seal five, and they put it together and they hurl it on the earth. And then there's lightning and peals of thunder. If you read in the first section of chapter eight. And so what is happening here is and we'll get into this here in a minute, but I I think it's worth mentioning before we jump in uh, into the details that what is worth mentioning is that those that are praying in chapter six that are under the altar and saying, how long, Lord, will you uh, take before you judge the inhabitants of the earth? Those that have done this to us, they're taking those prayers and they're th- her- being hurled mm-hmm. onto the earth. and so what is about to happen is actually answering God answering the prayers oh. of those that are under the altar.
1: Well.
0: And so here's the question then: Why judgment? I think every single one of us have this question. Judgment is coming. So why judgment? So, like I mentioned, what happens here is an answer to the prayers of those that are under the altar in seal five in 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 seal five trumpets, then begin to sound and what trumpets are, are a warning Mm -hmm. trumpets are always a sign of a warning in scripture. Uh, cry loud. Spare not. Blow the trumpet in Zion, right, is what Isaiah would say. And so trumpets are a warning of, of, uh, of judgment, but they're not the total judgment. They're just a warning of judgment. And so it's important, honestly, as you read through this, to pay attention to mercy because the judgments are intended to bring about repentance, mm-hmm. not to destroy Because if you begin to read what happens in chapter eight, eight times the fraction, a third is mentioned. Okay, Mm -hmm. and what this means is that this is a symbol, not an actual number, but it's a symbol of mercy because this is not two thirds. It's not one whole. It's a third. So it's a symbol of mercy. And, and so why judgment? Because it's an answer to of the prayers of those that are under the altar in seal five. And so judgment for whom? Judgment is for the, quote, inhabitants of the earth. Now, let me break this down a little bit because I want to remind you and then I want to push you forward. I want to remind you that we saw in the church in Philadelphia in chapter three, where Jesus promised the church that since they endured Patiently, he was going to keep them from the hour of trial that was coming to test the inhabitants of the earth. Yep. Okay? And then in 6.10, uh, the inhabitants are th- of the earth are the ones that uh, the martyrs under the altar are asking God to judge. God, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? And so what we begin to see is that anytime the inhabitants of the earth or whenever it talks about the rest of mankind is mentioned, it is usually followed by a description that they are those who are standing in the way of uh, standing in the way of the coming of God's kingdom and that judgment is coming for them because they are resisting the kingdom of God. And so what we see in chapter nine, verse 20, is that they are unrepentant after the sixth trumpet we also see in chapter 11 verse 10 that they gloat and they celebrate the demise of the earth and the witnesses that God sends out and these will be the ones that experience the woe of the voices in heaven while while um, those who have been sealed are spared Okay. Tracking so far? So when will the judgment take place? It is important to note that the seals uh, in chapters six and and seven or six and, and then eight, it's important to note that the seals are being seen from the perspective of the big C church. Like the church, whenever they look out into the world, what they are seeing are riders on horses coming to wreak havoc, a spiritual realm that is a reality. And it's the church that has an understanding of the spiritual realities of injustice. And so when the trumpets come onto the scene, the trumpets coincide with the seals but these trumpets are from the perspective of the world and so the same is true of the trumpets as it was about the seals that these warning judgments get worked out in redemptive history today even now and they happen before Jesus' final uh, physical appearance okay okay so as the seals are going on, we talked about that the seals were going on today. This is, this is uh, evil uh, unleashed on the earth. The trumpets now are from the perspective of the world. And what does the world see? What is the nature of the judgments? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> trumpets one through four are natural forces that are let loose. Okay? Okay. Uh, trumpet one: Hell and fire mixed with blood, and here's and here's the phrase: One third of the earth and its vegetation are burned. Trumpet two: A great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the water, and one third of the sea and its creatures and its ships are affected. Three, a great star, Wormwood, which, which if you're familiar with the plant also called Wormwood, you can take that and it's a poisonous plant. It's a bitter plant it, it, and it fell from heaven and one third of the rivers and the springs of water are poisoned. And then trumpet four, one third of the sun and the moon and the stars are darkness, which means that they're disrupting the natural rhythms of day and night. And then with trumpets five through six, these are demonic and worldly powers that are released. So trumpet five, the key to the abyss or the bottomless pit is given to a falling star. And then locust, which is synonymous with demonic agents come out from the bottomless pit and their king is called the destroyer. And then trumpet six is blown and four angels that are bound at the Euphrates are released. And one third of mankind is killed. Now, let me explain the sixth one because in the sixth one, the Euphrates is in the direction from which the Roman Empire, or Rome living in the area where John is writing Revelation and directing Revelation to, the Euphrates is in the direction from which the Romans feared invasion would come to topple the empire. So in trumpet six, it's essentially talking about an army or armies coming towards you. And there's been a lot of like Uh, Instagram post recently talking about how the Euphrates is drying up and then there's like these angels that are about to be released and they're hearing all these voices. Uh, Listen, at the end of the day, here's what I know, that these are, uh, that the Euphrates is only in the direction from which the Romans feared invasion would come and topple the empire. So it's the idea of war coming in. Okay. So then the question becomes, What is the response to judgment? You see, chapter 9 and verse 6 talks about how death begins to be salt because the judgment that is coming um, is is so um, uh, horrific that the inhabitants of the earth, those that are not sealed, begin to call out to death and death begins to flee from them. And death flees, And here's the reason why. Because God is seeking repentance. Mm -hmm. And so what is this? This is sheer grace. That when you die, there is no opportunity for repentance. Mm -hmm. That's it. But death begins to flee because as judgment gets poured out, the reason why judgment is being poured out is so that you have an opportunity to repent. But what happens a further hardening of the heart happens. And then we later see that there is some uh, repentance. I want to show you, well, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stick to my notes here real quick. So then what we see is in chapter 10 is essentially a commissioning that is happening. And it's a commissioning of John and his role. And so here's what I'll say about chapters, uh, chapter 10 verses one through seven. Okay. This is heaven working out man's role in the drama of redemption. Because what we see is that there's a commissioning taking place that will be revealed as we move further into revelation. And yet it's beginning at this point because in revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse eight, John is given a task, which we see is executed in the fact that he wrote revelation to begin with. And what is the task? The task is for John to prophesy. And get to my Bible here. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages and kings. He's given the commission to speak, to prophesy, to foretell. And not just foretell, but it's primarily a foretelling, as we've learned. And then what happens in chapter 11 is really interesting. Because chapter 11 is almost like chapter 7. If you remember what we said about chapter 7, chapter 7 is like a a parenthesis. It's an interlude, a deeper understanding of what is happening to those that are under the altar and who those are. Chapter 11 then is actually a deeper understanding into the commission, into the work that John has been commissioned for. And what we see then is this idea of 42 months, 1,260 days. If you're doing the math, that is three and a half years. Now it's important to state that because what we find in Revelation chapter 12, which we'll get to, uh, is that the dragon goes after a woman, uh, after a virgin who happens to give birth to a son, and he goes after this woman for three and a half years. Hmm. So this time frame of three and a half years, 1,260 days or 42 months is symbolic of the time between the time that Jesus is born and whenever he returns and what we have identified as the as the time as the resistance we see between the kingdom of God and evil in between that time then we're introduced then to these two witnesses okay these two witnesses in verse 3 of chapter 11 are said to be clothed in sackcloth. Anybody remember what sackcloth means? Mourning. Someone's died. What, what's another? Say again? Fasting. Repentance. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. You all are right, but I was looking for Repentance. <laughs> So sackcloth is a sign of repentance. And it's also, if you remember John the Baptist, what did he wear? Camel clothes and underneath it was sackcloth. Prophets would wear sackcloth because it was the clothing of a prophet. So not only are the two witnesses given the commission to prophesy, they are wearing sackcloth, they are wearing repentance and their, their message is one of repentance. So they're preaching repentance and they're living repentance. And then there are two lampstands in verse 4. The lampstands, as we already know, uh, are are identified in Revelation chapter 1 to be the church. And we know that with lampstands comes fire that light up the lampstands, which we've identified as the fire of the Holy Spirit. But what about the two olive trees? Also in verse four, this is a picture that comes from Zechariah chapter four of two anointed ones. If you want to get more specific, this is of Zerubbabel and uh, the prophet Joshua. And they are given a word and everyone in here uh, that grew up in church knows this word. You ready? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And that's the word that they're given to be able to go out into exile and preach that word that it is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, Mm -hmm. says the Lord. And they are to go out. If you listen, if you if you pay attention to the descriptions of the way that they ought to go out, they go out like Elijah because they're able to call fire down from heaven or cause there to be no rain by through what they are prophesying. And they are to go out like Moses, where they are able in verse six, able to uh, uh, turn water into blood. And so what are these? These are the signs that God is with them. Elijah and Moses couldn't do this on their own. They had to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It says that the Holy Spirit of God came upon them and they were able to do these wonders. And so these are signs that God is with them and the power they are able to exert is due to the empowerment of the Spirit. Are you following so far? Okay. Two. So why two olive trees? Why two witnesses? Why two lampstands? Two is the number on which a charge is established. Mm-hmm. Meaning, if one sees it, it could be dismissed as hearsay. Mm-hmm. But if two see it, then it is considered factual. Mm-hmm. And so, lampstands, olive trees, and witnesses are a picture of the church full of the Holy Spirit, burning brightly with the fire of God, establishing that what they are prophesying is true. Okay. So now we get to the beast and the death of prophets. We are introduced to the beast in chapter 11, verse 7. And here's what I want to say. The beast is the real enemy, not humanity. Look at chapter 11, verse 7. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Who kills them? Not humanity. The beast kills these two witnesses. And whenever they're killed, they lie in the great city. Now, before you say, well, this is Jerusalem. Jerusalem didn't exist necessarily in the way that we know to be as the great city. And, and it not, not only that, but it talks about how, uh, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Now, let's talk about Sodom and Egypt real quick. Sodom was when humanity was most corrupt. Egypt was when humanity was most resistant to God. And so to talk about witnesses being dead in the great city, which is figuratively for Sodom and Egypt, it's talking about a time when humanity is most corrupt and when it is most resistant to God. And what happens? The inhabitants of the earth, which we've already talked about, verse 10, glow over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because of the two prophets. The two prophets are dead that tormented them. They lie in the street, then, not for three and a half years, but for three and a half days. Then the breath of life comes back into them and causes them to stand up and terror struck the inhabitants of the earth. And then what we see is wonderful news. What do we read in verse 13? How is verse 13 wonderful news? Because it says, at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and the 10th of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and they gave glory to God in heaven. This is after these two witnesses were resurrected. How is that wonderful news? Remember, fractions and numbers are not literal. And said, what these are are symbols then, and these symbols are symbols of mercy. What is happening here is actually a reversal. Let me explain. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13, it talks about how God will save just one-tenth. However, in Revelation 11:13, God saves nine-tenths and only destroys one-tenth. In First 1 Kings 19:18, Elijah Complains that only seven thousand are left, Lord. But in Revelation eleven thirteen, John says that only seven thousand die. And so this reversal is due to the faithful witnesses who witness God's goodness and mercy, yet are killed. And because of how they die, nine tenths are redeemed. And then what happens? The survivors, the inhabitants of the earth, those who survived the great earthquake, they gave glory to God in heaven. Mm-hmm. They give their life to Jesus, in other words. Mm-hmm. They begin to recognize Jesus as Lord. Now, time for the exhortation. Are you ready? Yes. I love this part. Revelation 8 and 9, we get the picture of an angel coming and taking incense from God's altar along with the prayers of those under the altar and hurling it upon the earth. (coughs) Excuse me. And what we see next is the trumpet of God's warning judgments that are beginning to sound. This is warning, not, not total judgment, right? And so we said that these were warning judgments getting worked out in history. And these judgments come from in the form of natural disasters, devastating crimes, demonic works, and war so that all the inhabitants of the earth, those that were not sealed, those who had not placed their trust in Jesus, would repent. And so the warning judgments, honestly, are the prayers of God's people for God to judge, getting answered your prayers and my prayers, saying, How long, O Lord? Come, Lord. Do you see what's happening around us? Mm -hmm. And this is God's response to our prayers. But rather than coming to kill and destroy humanity, essentially doing what maybe our hearts desire, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which is what we want because they've martyred our people. They've killed us. They're persecuting us, God. Jesus instead shows up by offering mercy and a chance to repent. And this is his perfect justice. He isn't destroying all of the earth or two-thirds. He's only causing judgment to come upon a third. This is his perfect mercy. Wow. And yet, one of the most, if not the most, devastating verses in scripture that, I've, that I read in the Bible is that after warning judgments sound and these judgments come, mankind still didn't repent. As a matter of fact, they did not stop worshiping demons and their idols. This is verses 20 and 21 of chapter nine. Nor did they repent of their murders, witchcraft, sexual immorality, or thefts. Now, let me stop here and bring this up. This right here is the time that we're living in. Like, look around you. This is what you see and experience each and every day. So what we see throughout chapters 8 and 9 is God allowing warning judgment to come upon the earth. And we see the spiritual kingdom of God at work in physical redemptive history. And we also see the kingdom of darkness at work in resisting the kingdom of God and blinding the eyes of the inhabitants of the earth so that they don't repent even when everything around them is pointing to the goodness of God and his mercy. Now, I'm going to stop here just for a second because I want to be sensitive to what I was sensing the spirit is wanting to do among us as I was preparing for today. Because I'm not saying that the hardship and the injustice you see around you, or maybe that you, you um, have experienced is God's judgment. You see, just like we can't say that 9-11, for example, is as a result of God's judgment on America or that or tornado hitting your neighbor's house and sparing yours is God's judgment on your neighbor. We don't have the clarity of sight to be able to say that definitively in every circumstance. However, one thing that I do know is that while today is called today, we are given the opportunity to repent and seek to work out our salvation in the midst of terrible and awful things going on around us. We are given the opportunity to allow the Spirit of God to search, to dig deep in our souls and find those nooks and crannies that we try to keep hidden from everyone. But we know that they're there. And if we know, God surely knows. You don't have to keep that hidden. And you don't have to fight alone. You know why? And this is something that I love to say that I learned from another pastor of mine. The cross has already outed you. You're able to bring it to the lie and allow God to do the deep work to set you free because there's nothing, there's nothing that, uh, the, the, in other words, the cross has covered all sin. It didn't exclude some and then kind of die for others. No, he died for how many sins? All. All. So sometimes that means like things like getting rid of your smartphone, changing your number, setting up your computer in a public space as opposed to keeping it in a private space where no one can see what you're viewing. Not taking your phone into the bathroom, not walking by that coworker's desk, getting, or, or maybe it means getting a new job or doing anything to put that sin or idols to death is worth it yeah. Yeah, that's
1: right. yeah.
0: when compared to the abundant life found in yeah. Jesus.
1: Yeah. Sure.
0: So Jesus, mm-hmm. will you help us in this moment Help us kill our idols and put sin to death and show us where we need to repent and walk it out in glad submission to you. Holy Spirit, will you minister to our hearts right now? Will the light of your conviction shine on these areas that we've tried to keep hidden from you? was a perfect moment but we're going to keep going so if we want to turn it down just a little bit because those are chapters 8 through 9 but chapters 10 through 11 then show us what we as the church ought to do and I believe that this is the invitation of God to his people not to sit idly by Instead, it is an an invitation to active participation in bringing about his redemption, righteousness, and justice upon the earth. You see, chapters 10 and 11 is a lot like chapter 7. It is a parenthesis, an interlude, to show us what is happening with the people of God as God allows warning judgments. And what we see is that John is given the task, you ready? To eat the little scroll that was sweet in his mouth and yet turned his stomach sour.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he was told to prophesy, which we identified through what the, uh, during one of our series last year, that prophecy is primarily a forth than a foretelling. Yeah. And So guys, I'm just going to be really honest with you. I love the word of God, yet my stomach today has been in knots because of the nature of this message. This is what John is getting at. That not that we should all get in front of people and teach the word of God like maybe I am today, but to reveal the goodness of God in his kingdom. And this is good yet hard. Like, you know what it's like to feel the sweetness of you, of what you hope to say, and yet have the sourness of it in your stomach? Like, I've had these conversations uh, with many of you in here, like, like I'm going into it knowing, man, this is sweet. This is the goodness of God. But man, my stomach is sour and in knots because this may not be easy to say. Or maybe as you're going up and the Holy Spirit prompts you to say something to a complete stranger. You know that it's sweet. It's sweet in your mouth. And yet, as you're walking up to that complete stranger who, who you know nothing about and knows nothing about you, there's this sourness in your stomach because you're saying, ha!" Ah. So chapter 11 reveals the spiritual nature of what John is commanded to do and by extension, what we are to do and what is happening as we faithfully engage with the world and prophesy God's word. We said that three and a half years is symbolic of the time between Jesus' first coming to when he appears again and in that time, or or rather in this time that we're living in, what we see is the opposition and the clashing of kingdoms that exists between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And we said that lampstands, olive trees, and witnesses are a picture of the church full of the Holy Spirit burning brightly in the fire of God. And, and so the question is, what are we to do? We ought to be clothed in sackcloth. This means that we live a lifestyle prophesying repentance and living out repentance yes, ourselves. Yes, yes. This is our kingdom lifestyle. We talked about how the people of God are also to be praying, Jesus come, like the greatest weapon we have is to pray and, and Jesus, would you please come? Come. And then we learn in chapter 7 that we are a people who have a song to sing in the midst of really difficult hardships. So, pray and singing. And here is what is, it gets added. What gets added to us is a message of repentance. That in the midst of our praying, in the midst of our singing, we call the inhabitants of the earth, those who have not been sealed, those who have not placed their trust in Jesus to repent and we do so full of the power of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to be witnesses to the kingdom of God and what Jesus has accomplished. And here's the truth is that we were born for such a time as this. In the middle of Sodom and Egypt where people are the most corrupt, where people are the most resistant to Jesus and his kingdom. But now let me let, let me pause here and just give you a fair warning. The hardship this resistance is not against like humanity, it's not against you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because Revelation 11 introduces us to a real enemy. Yeah. And this real enemy is the beast the antichrist and the spirit of the antichrist is at work in society and in the unrepentance we're commissioned and invited into participating in the spiritual war that is taking place and our call is to be filled with the Holy Spirit like Elijah and Moses were and preach the good news of the kingdom of God with boldness and courage I mean Stop to consider the implications. If we are to stand against the injustices happening in our society, we are to do so with truth and the courage and boldness that comes with that. And that is not, and that is going to not only be sweet in our mouth, but it's going to be bitter in our stomachs. The bitterness is why it's hard. But it's necessary to watch the video that captured the nonviolent protesters crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the chaos that ensued during the Civil Rights Movement. Mm. If you haven't watched that video, it's essentially nonviolent protesters walking across one side of the bridge in Alabama to going towards Salem. And what happens is that on the other side are policemen yeah. with batons and, and tear gas, and they begin to beat. And tear gas these violent non uh, these violent nonviolent protesters coming across the bridge, and you get this bitterness in your stomach. It's why it's hard but necessary, and I'm gonna speak to my boy here. Uh, Alex, it's hard to watch the president of El Salvador speak with courage and boldness against the gangs that have ravished El Salvador for so long and simultaneously give an answer to the critics from other nations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's why it's bitter but necessary to listen to the stories of the abused and marginalized and also work in their favor. It's bitter but necessary to stand against injustice and allow God to bring about his perfect justice. And consider this. The beast will be so successful at waging war against the bride of Christ that it will seem as though the church is dead and not alive as though it no longer has any influence, power, or position. So much so that those that refuse to repent, they will gloat and celebrate by sending each other gifts because the church is no longer tormenting them. Mm-hmm. Tormenting? Yes. This is what the message of true repentance does. It torments the kingdom of darkness. It pricks the conscience. Yeah. Why does prophesying good news torment? Because the good news confronts the idols we have. It confronts the idols of society and the idols of nations. The good news of the kingdom of God is bad news, is the bad news of the kingdom of darkness and anything inconsistent with the kingdom of God. And the gospel reveals and exposes our idols and that we either repent and follow Jesus or we glow over the seeming powerlessness of God's people. Mm-hmm. Wow. And here's a legitimate question. Who is to blame for the injustices of the world? Many will turn to God and say, how could you let something like this happen, God? without any thought to the fact that we've given into our own idols of self-gratification and comfort. The London Times once put out a question that said, what is wrong with the world? And so we asked the same question. What is wrong with the world? But we never stopped to consider that maybe what is wrong with it is not what, but who. And that the answer to that question is actually revealed in the mirror that we look at so we what would we do we preach the good news of the kingdom of god that there is a savior who came to redeem us and calls us to look like, look to him and live like him in other words to live in the way of the lamb which is the way of sacrificial love mm. to consider our lives cheap When compared to the riches of his grace and of his mercy to lay our lives down for our friends and to serve our enemies, to go the extra mile and love one another as Jesus has loved us. This will mean giving up your life as a witness. Now, pay special attention to this word being used in the text. The Greek word, so two witnesses, the Greek word for witness is martis, which is where we get our English word for martyr. And martyrs are people who get killed for telling the truth. And this is what will happen. Living this way will cause all hell to break loose against us and will render the church as if it was dead, powerless, or ineffectual whether it's in our lives, in our society, in the public sphere, or within our culture. And yet, this is for a short time. For the Spirit of God will breathe upon the church and the church will rise from its sleep and seeming death. And what does giving our life in this way accomplish? Like, what what does it mean to give our life for the truth? Like, to give our life in the midst of these judgments pouring out, that that we're going out to the world to be lights and proclaimers of this good news, what happens? What does it accomplish to give my life up this way? To give my life up for my friends? Mm -hmm. To take up my cross and deny myself? Mm -hmm. It accomplishes wonderful news. Mm -hmm. You see, one tenth of the known world collapses, where it was said that one tenth were the only ones to be saved. Seven thousand are killed, but it was said that only seven thousand would survive. A great reversal happens. And what happened in Telemachus' day continued to happen throughout history. And will it continue to happen when we walk in the way of the Lamb. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Terrified survivors repent and give glory to God, and here's what happens: revival breaks out. Now, for those of you that are concerned that we are in the end times, it's true we are. We've been in the end times. Since Jesus came to this earth,
1: yeah.
0: and what is the final sign of Jesus is coming? It isn't war. They aren't natural disasters or evil powers breaking loose and wreaking havoc. No, it is revival. It is the spirit of God being poured out in unprecedented ways that calls the earth to shake, nations to repent, and people from every tribe language to give glory to God. And we are all headed to that new kingdom reality. And the kingdom reality is revealed in the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet, loud voices in heaven said, Revelation eleven fifteen. the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, get ready for this. You ready? Lean in right here, because this is where you start responding and you participate. Here's the question. What are the loud voices in heaven saying? Ecclesia City, we live under a common narrative, and that common narrative is what the loud voices of heaven are saying, which is,
1: the kingdom has come.
0: Isn't that amazing? And so, Lord, we want to join in with the 24 elders who fell on their faces and worshiped you, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty the one who is and who was because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time has come for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your people who reveal your name, both great and small and for destroying those who destroy the earth. I don't know about you, but like, like, Sourness in my stomach is starting to go away just to think about the fact that we're living in a time for such a time as this to be proclaimers of good news. And these voices are later to be revealed as those crying out under the altar where they cried out, how long Lord? Now they're crying out. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your people who reveal your name, both great and small. Jesus makes all things right, but we're not there yet in our journey through revelation. But I want us to sit in this for a little bit. I want to be mindful of the kid's time, but I know that like hearts are burning. I, at least mine is. Yeah. But as I th- as I thought about like, Lord, what is it that you want to do among us with this message? I think there's a question and then there's an exhortation here. And the question is, is there a reluctance to repent in certain areas of our lives? Now, here's what I'll say about this question. This is God's grace and mercy being offered to you as this opportunity to be able to step in and say, here's where I need to repent. And yet, this moment may also feel like, man, I I feel like I I want someone to pray with me over this, but it's gonna take more than just a few minutes. And so if that's you, I I just wanna encourage you to not just let this, like, don't let this moment pass by and, and maybe even say that, but then follow it up. Say, hey, Brother, hey, sister, I, I just would love to work this out together. Yeah. And what you do then is you pray, like you repent in this moment, but then there's opportunity to be able to work it out and to do so with boldness and with courage yes. and with time. But I also want us to be filled with spirit
1: yeah, yeah.
0: and to pray, Holy Spirit, come. And knowing that being filled with the Spirit means that we are empowered to be witnesses in the world. For you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and all of Jerusalem, even unto the ends of the earth, is what Jesus' promise was when he promised that the Holy Spirit would come upon you. So being filled with the Spirit, I know sometimes in in charismatic circles or those that grew up in charismatic tradition can mean like, man, there's some crazy things that could happen whenever the Holy Spirit fills you. But here's the main thing that you need to know. That this is not about crazy things happening. This is about the empowerment of the Spirit being put on you, coming up on you. So let's pray to that end because what we see is that in our fight against sin, in our fight against like these dark hidden places, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin and live in renewal. So I'm going to ask that we all just prepare our hearts and I want to do that by taking communion. And so Jesus, we thank you for what you have done breaking your body, shedding your blood for us. Work in and among us. In Jesus' name.